five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello, space enthusiasts. We are back to rockets in this episode. Well, there's so much going on in space now. By the way, did you see NASA announcing the Venus missions a couple of days ago? We definitely need to have an episode on that. But we always have to periodically come back to rockets, because who doesn't like rockets? So do you know what an aerospike engine is? It's a special type of rocket engine, the idea of which has been around for many decades. But it was technologically tough to pull off until now. And that may be changing now. And that is what this week's company is working on. I have Adria Ajimi and Federico Rossi from Pingier Aerospace in Barcelona. And by the way, yeah, we really need travel to restart because this conversation I would have preferred to have there in Barcelona. Anyway, as always, feel free to email us your questions or comments on the episode at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com or post them on our Twitter, which is podcast underscore space. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and or rating on your favorite podcast platform so more people can find the show. Now, here are a couple of short messages from our sponsors. Then please enjoy my conversation with Adria and Federico from Pangea Aerospace. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I am an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Just a quick note to say that we had some minor audio issues with one of the guests for the first five to ten minutes, but do bear with us. They go away after five to ten minutes and the rest of the episode is definitely worth it. We'll also put the exact point in time into the show notes. Thank you for bearing with us. Well, hello, everybody. It's my pleasure to be here today, joined by Adria Ajimi and Federico Rossi from Pangea Aerospace. Hey, guys, how are you? Hello. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. We're doing fine here. I mean, yeah. a sunny day in Barcelona is always. <laughs> yes, and I'm, I'm very envious. I'm in, I'm in Zurich in Switzerland, and it's sunny as well, but I'm really dying to come back and start traveling again, of course, and stop by, by Barcelona and come visit you guys. And for full disclosure, E2MC Ventures, of course, where I'm the managing partner, has recently invested in GR Aerospace. So, you know, we have another good reason to visit you guys. So why don't we start actually with Barcelona, because it's such a nice place. How is the the local space ecosystem there? It's it's not bad, of course. It's not the major city in Europe for for the space ecosystem. But I think one of the reasons we decided to implement the company here is because to try to you know attract more talent of Barcelona and the um, Mediterranean is always a plus when you want to attract people. And of course, because Barcelona has quite a lot of ecosystem in in the startup world, not related per se into the space, but trying to benefit from the fact of, you know, having VCs uh, that, for example, are in biotech that in some cases biotech could be more or less equal mm. in terms of you know long-term investments and, and big capital rounds and to explain them how the space ecosystem works so I think it's a good place to be 
in this case. Yeah, if I can add something to that, I mean, I think Barcelona is really becoming a mm-hmm. tech hub also here where we are in the area of Poblenou, which is amazing. By the way, come visit us. We're close to the beach. One sure. <laughs> so there are a lot of, as Adria was mentioning, biotech startups and hubs and incubators and such, but uh, we are the weirdos because we are the only ones that are doing hardware and rockets in this case Uh, so uh, one thing that for example to me is lacking in Barcelona it's a tissue of manufacturers so for those you have to go more to central Europe like for example Germany which is a thing that is lacking a little bit in Spain but here I mean for the rest of the ecosystem so networking uh, incubators and other people to to contact you it's it's really one of the best places in Europe I think mm-hmm. and I think it must also be good because there is this existing startup ecosystem the, the the financing part of venture capital I assume is also good yeah and yet again here on the biotech ones they are used to listen to you know long term yeah mm-hmm. long roadmaps and and big capital rounds and yeah as Fede was was saying I mean there's not a very big Tech system, but in Barcelona and neither in Spain, even though it's growing and it's growing at a, at a fast pace. But I think this is also good to differentiate, differentiate ourselves and, and and try to be different as well. It's is it, yeah, it's interesting. So the other space companies I know in Spain, they're sort of all over the place in different places. Pattern. Yeah, right? there's like uh, who do I know? There's a PLD, the rocket guys, right? I think they're not that far. They're in Alicante, I think. Alicante. Yes. Yeah. Senna, I think, is uh, is up in the north, and then there is yeah. uh, UARX, Space Talk, that's all the way in Galicia. Galicia <laughs> so if I had to visit everybody, you know, it would be quite yeah, a scattered. Yeah. scattered and, think... and the big ones uh, stay in, in Madrid like that. Yeah. I Day think most GMV, Airbus, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. One, of, one, of, one of the reasons might be because well, like if uh, one of them explodes some hardware, then it doesn't affect the hardware of the others. You know? like, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's good, good, good risk management. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's a risk management system. Just like, put more kilometers in the middle and that's all. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Excellent. So again, I, I will come visit soon. So you're talking about people locally being used to sort of longer term stories like in biotech. Um, you are working on a number of things, um, which we shall talk about. Um, potential small launcher, a very interesting type of rocket engine, which is called an aerospike engine. How did you guys come to, to do that? What's the origin story here of the company? Okay. So we founded in 2018, February 2018, the founding team. So we are both part of the founding team. We are five founders um, that we met in a Space Masters in, in La Senza in Rome. And I, I had um, the ideas on trying to build this type of rocket engine and make it reusable with a reusability system that we'll explain later. And yeah, I went this master to try to convince some engineers as myself and this is where i met for example fede that has worked previously with the aerospike engines rest of the technical team and then we i convinced them to join me on this adventure and we came to barcelona to found aerospace which we on the long term we have the idea of the launcher as you mentioned on the short term we are doing it in a slightly different ways of the other uh, let's say rocket companies so we are developing um, new technologies, innovative technologies such as engine that can have more or less 10 to 15% more efficiency than compared to a conventional one. And on top of that, a vehicle uh, is designed to be reusable from scratch. So, so from the beginning, we do believe that these two kinds of, of technologies together uh, helped us uh, in a substantial manner on really decreasing the cost access to space. Hmm. 
But first, let's like our building blocks of the technologies, and then of course press, and we succeed in our test and demonstrator, and we'll scale it up. We will uh, attack, let's say, the the whole launcher's uh, story. Mm, I can add some more uh, specific examples, maybe for the foundation of the team. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I remember, so I met Adrian in Rome, actually. So we were at this lecture for this masters, and then we ended up being same uh, flat. Yeah. <laughs> that was uh, was paid by the university and I had performed like a thesis work with Avio, my former company in Italy on the aerospace engine to replace some last just of the Left Vega launcher and okay, whatever. And so I remember Adri asked me for uh, for my thesis basically. So yeah, can you actually tell me what you did during your studies? And I say, oh, the aerospace engine. Oh, cool. Can you send me your thesis? <laughs> like, but I had idea like that this was because he already had a plan like in yeah. advance to create this whole thing based on the aerospace engine and he asked me casually about my thesis on the aerospace and I said yeah sure I mean I will send it to you but <laughs> you know <laughs> for him it was everything was already was already planned and then in fact I mean during the months I mean I got more and more involved with uh, with my knowledge the aerospace and uh, we created the core team basically also together with the other guys also i mean if i if i may add something on the that, that is interesting on the foundation of the team is that uh, we really did the, like the, the u.s startup growth because at the beginning like we came to barcelona after working a little in italy and we had nowhere to go and so basically adria he has a <laughs> wonderful house in the middle of uh, the region of catalonia and we stayed there three months like working all together yeah. on a big table uh, like like, uh, you know, the, the U.S. startup garage, garage yeah. sort of, but it was a beautiful villa in the countryside of <laughs> Catalonia. So we were luckier than the Americans. In sense. <laughs> I, I hope, were you testing like rocket engines there in the countryside? <laughs> not, not, yet. not yet, not but yet. Now, now we're starting. Now <laughs> we're starting testing rocket engines there. Yes. We'll come back to that in a second. I have to follow up though, um, Adria, when, when you said you, when was it when you, when, what year did you start thinking about setting up a launch company? I would say, yeah, 2015 to 16. Okay. Uh, okay, so that's a little bit earlier than I thought, because my question would have been, basically, now, nowadays, obviously, we, we have so many people who want to set up launch companies, most of them on paper, right, but then some yeah. more some more advanced, and I was just curious how you decided to want to be an entrepreneur rather than, you say, join some existing effort, um, you know, I mean, like, like PLD or ESA or some other company in Europe, which which was working on launch. I, I worked previously in at Airbus uh, on propulsion, but more aeronautical aircraft propulsion. I always loved, let's say, the more powerful rocket engine systems. I kept myself pretty informed in terms, you know, of literature, of the conferences. And I knew I was always obsessed with this kind of aerospike and I found it so cool and then so in interesting technically on how to, to solve all the challenges it, it has. And then this with plus following the news on 3D printing. It was not clear at that time because you always do kind of this leap of faith, but that combining the, those two could be uh, uh, an enabler for, for doing this type of engine. And it, it really is actually, sure it's paying off in, in this sense. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so I, I guess we, we have mentioned aerospikes quite a few times now. Quite a few times. People who are, people who are not um, aero-astro engineers listening are probably like, okay, can you just pl please explain what an aerospike engine is? Yeah, so what is this? this time, the time has come where we should give the sort of the beginner's introduction to, to aerospike engines. Absolutely. 
Mm, absolutely. Okay. So this is my field. I mean, yeah. I'll try. Uh, so, well, let's start from the name. I mean, the error spike basically means that it's uh, aerodynamically exploiting some sort of spike. In fact, this engine has a, a spike, so some uh, protruding uh, device that basically exploits uh, the the air pressure to adapt the flow. Now I'm explaining everything, okay? Usually, um, bell nozzles are the ones that are used in the industry. Uh, like I can see the Southern 5 behind you, Raphael, and that's exploiting bell nozzles. Uh, to basically compress the flow to very high pressures and then expand the flow. So how a rocket nozzle works is that you generate combustion in a sort of closed chamber, you raise the pressure inside this chamber because of combustion, and then you expand this flow in a nozzle. And the nozzle looks like a bell, exactly like a bell. That's why it's called a bell nozzle. So you exploit basically thermal energy into uh, kinetic energy to push uh, your way up on uh, the atmosphere. Now, how a bell nozzle works is that there's first this combustion, then there is a region that is called the throat, where the nozzle is uh, very tiny. It has the tiniest section. And then there is the nozzle expanding. Now, in the nozzle, the flow is supersonic. It's traveling, uh, imagine that, at more or less like five, six kilometers per second mm -hmm. in that nozzle. So the flow is supersonic and basically doesn't know anything that is downstream because a supersonic flow doesn't care. It doesn't know what is downstream. Mm -hmm. And basically this uh, uh, makes so that a bell nozzle only optimally works at one value of the ambient pressure. So when this nozzle is discharging into the ambient, there is only one value of the ambient pressure that makes it optimal. So, as you know, rockets go up in the atmosphere. Pressure changes. Yes. yes. Correct. <laughs> exactly. So these nozzles are not optimized throughout the entire trajectory. But what you do is you select a value in between land and space where you want your nozzle to work optimally, and you, you design it for that. And sorry, just, just, just to remind us, whether a specific bell nozzle is optimal for a specific pressure environment, if I remember correctly, depends either on the diameter or the ratio between the diameter to the throat, something yes. like that, right? Exactly. That is called the expansion ratio. In the expansion ratio. Yeah, thank you. Exactly. Yeah. The higher there is, the higher the altitude for which you're optimal. The lower it is, uh, the more optimal you are close to sea level. And, and this, this, is, this is also if, you know, I'm sure many people listening, you know, sometimes watch the SpaceX launches where you can kind of see the first stage and the second stage, and you can actually see that both, both on the first stage and second stage, you have Merlin engines, but they're really different size. Indeed. For that reason, correct? Exactly, right. yes, exactly. In fact, you have the Merlin 1D, which is the one at sea level, and then you have the Merlin 1D back, which is vacuum. In fact, uh, the Merlin 1D back is the same as the 1D, but it has what is called a nozzle extension. Do you know when you see the videos for Space from SpaceX, for example, that thing that becomes glowing red? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the nozzle extension. It's made of uh, exotic materials like niobium and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So it basically gets super hot and it radiates heat to space. And that's exactly, that's a bell extension just to make it optimal for vacuum where the ambient pressure is zero or very close to zero. Okay, so going back to our aerospike topic. Um, so the aerospike works differently because uh, in the aerospike, the flow is not constrained by a nozzle. Okay, but the flow is let free to expand over the spike, which is 
where the name comes from. So basically, in the aerospike, you still have a combustion chamber. So you generate combustion, you raise your pressure, then you have this throat, but then you have the spike or the plug. So basically, you let this flow free to expand and to adapt to the ambient pressure because the flow will be not anymore constrained by the bell. It's not expanding inside the bell, but it's expanding in, in the free atmosphere, basically. So if the atmospheric pressure is very high, the flow will be squeezed because the pressure is trying to squeeze the flow mm -hmm. towards the spike, okay? And this increases the thrust also even more. Then as you go up, of course, the atmospheric pressure is reducing and the flow is expanding more and more because the pressure is low and the flow wants to expand into this low pressure environment. So basically, the expansion ratio that we were talking about before for an aerospike is variable because it depends on ambient pressure. Mm -hmm. Flow mm -hmm. will expand more when the ambient pressure is low and will expand less when the ambient pressure is high. So it's a variable expansion ratio without any geometrical moving surfaces. So this is the big advantage of the aerospike, that you can stay lightweight because you're not adding any geometrical devices or automatization devices, and you are optimal at every given altitude. This, as Adria was mentioning before, gives an edge of performance over a bell nozzle, which is around 12-15%, which is huge, okay? In our sector, we're talking about performance increase of 1% being huge. This is between 12 and 15, so imagine that. And I assume the reason you're saying that is because when you say efficiency, I guess that's related to how much fuel you have to take along, right? Exactly. And then because we're still working within conventional rocketry and something called the rocket equation holds valid, exactly. which, which basically means that the majority of any rocket in operation, the vast majority is basically fuel. So if you can increase the efficiency even slightly, it means you can take much more payload. Like the percentage of payload is just going to go up dramatically. Is, would correct. that be correct? Exactly, Rafael. Yeah, I see you're you're very aware of this. Yeah, the rocket equation that's tells you that equation, the Tsiolkovsky yeah. equation or the rocket equation. Yeah, tells you that of course the less uh, the less fuel uh, you use, the more efficient you are, and the more you can like uh, minimize your structural mass also with respect to the overall rocket mass. Because yeah, as you say, like a rocket is ninety percent fuel basically. So imagine if you can minimize fifteen percent of that fuel uh, the the increase in payload is dramatic yeah so we're talking about increasing specific impulse is what you call actually mm -hmm. in the aerospace so the increasing performance is an increasing specific impulse which is a figure measured in seconds it's usually around 300 seconds mm -hmm. for this kind of devices so you can go up by 15 percent with the aerospike mm -hmm. so you would get closer yeah i think so the, the merlin and the raptor are sort of like 300 330 so you, you would get closer to you hope to get closer to 400 basically yeah exactly we're actually with the full-scale engine now the specific impulse depends on a lot of things but mm -hmm. with the full-scale engine we are close to 370 which is uh, great yeah. for this propellant combination because we are using liquid oxygen and liquid methane mm -hmm. you would use liquid hydrogen for example you could easily go uh, to 430 440 but that's a different propellant yeah yeah so we, yeah, do we decided to to go with with methane um because it's it's cleaner mm -hmm. uh, and if you want to reuse the engine and use the propellant to cool it down um, methane is is one of the best combinations because it doesn't leave any soot inside your mm. cooling panels mm -hmm. um, 
<coughs> as well as as Fede was saying, yeah, yeah. It, it was a technical solution, the, the methane, not because it's you know trendy, and that now everyone it's 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 saying that you uses methane, but mm. uh, it, it is really a technical decision. Yeah, the, yeah, the uses of, of methane. I mean, if we're into this topic, I mean, what is is being also sponsorized a lot by SpaceX, for example, is moving yeah. from uh, from kerosene to to liquid methane, you know, because it's it's greener, but also because I mean, SpaceX has uh, ambitious plans that we don't have right now. So to go to mm -hmm. other planets, as you know, I'm sure it is possible to synthesize methane from other atmospheres like such as the, the, the Martian. Especially on Mars, yeah. Exactly. And so basically, I mean, it would be very convenient if you go there and you can refuel directly on Mars by synthesizing methane. methane. For us, uh, the, the, the choice was more related to performance, as Adria was saying, but also for SpaceX. I mean, the Raptor engine is based on liquid methane. It's much more efficient than other engines that use uh, hydrogen and also much easier because hydrogen is very volatile. It's... Uh, it's very prone to explosions. It's very cold. We're talking about minus 250 Celsius degrees. Imagine that. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, a choice that all around makes sense to go yeah. for methane right now. Okay. So let's just uh, spend another two or three minutes going into some more details on, on, on the engine setup. Um, so is there anything else besides the aerospike, the nozzle design, is there anything else that's, that would differ from quote unquote regular rocket engine or is the rest sort of should be imagined to be the same? And, you know, for example, one question would be, how do you feed the, the, the oxidizer and a propellant? And for non-technical listeners, there's, correct me if I'm wrong, there's basically two ways of doing that. You can pressure feed it, or you can use what's called turbo pumps. How, how is, how is that whole setup? Is it similar to other rocket engines or is there any any differences before letting uh, fede jumping into that um on on our first demonstrator that we are going to test later this year that will be the first uh, you know let's say full engine that we want to test it's going to be of course pressure fed um mm -hmm. and that we're, we're going to do it in in Lampelshausen in germany space agency uh, facilities uh, mm -hmm. later this year but then the upcoming designs i, I will let fede explain it yeah yeah exactly so yeah first of all pressure fed means that we will stick this engine onto some tanks that are pressurized and then these mm -hmm. tanks will basically shoot inside the engine because of pressure so it's a very simple uh, device let's say a mm -hmm. system uh, the other system that you mentioned rafael is uh, pump fed and uh, now this can be either turbo pump fed or electric pump fed sure. uh, yeah in which basically you have a, a pump there that is rotating at very high speeds and and it transforms kinetic energy into pressure energy so it does the opposite that what we were saying before that a bell nozzle does mm -hmm. now these pumps uh, of course it can be electrical like rocket lab yeah, yeah. New Zealand US companies using electric pumps because batteries are improving more and more and it's possible but uh, then batteries will be very heavy. So usually what is done in rockets is to use turbo pumps. Uh, basically, these are devices where you have a pump that is rotating and pressurizing the flow, but the rotation to the pump is given by a turbine, which is another device, sort of what you can find on aircrafts, for example. Now, for our design, we will, in fact, use uh, a turbo pump arrangement, so with a turbine and a pump for the fuel and the oxidizer. So we will have one turbo pump for the fuel, which is liquid methane, and mm -hmm. one turbo pump for the oxidizer, which is liquid oxygen. Now, how this arrangement will work is very interesting eventually, if we make it work, because basically we want to exploit 
Now, this is complex to explain, but I'll try my best in one minute. So our engine gets very hot when it's fired, of course, like every engine. So we are cooling it down with the propellants. So we are mm -hmm. using liquid gases, which are very cold mm -hmm. in the combustion chamber. So before burning these gases, we use them to cool down the engine, okay? This is called regenerative cooling. Mm -hmm. Now, when these propellants are cooling the engine, they get hot. So they acquire energy, mm -hmm. enthalpy, as you say in engineering. Then this enthalpy can be exploited to expand these flows into the turbines mm -hmm. to make them rotate. And then these turbines make the pump rotate that pressurize the propellant and inject it in the chamber. Okay, this system is very complex. It's called a dual expander cycle, okay? Mm -hmm. There are many cycles to feed engines. SpaceX, for example, is using a full flow staged combustion mm -hmm. cycle, as it's called. There are gas generator cycles. We want to use a dual expander cycle to exploit the propellants, to pressurize the same propellants. It's a, it's a loop that works very well. <laughs> yeah, I, I apologize. We're an audio-only podcast. This is where we should really show some diagrams. Of exactly, yeah. <laughs> maybe, we can, maybe we can find something online, and I'll, I'll link to it in the, in the episode notes. But yeah. um, okay, that was very interesting. But just to kind of come back then to to aerospikes, I guess. So it, it all sounds terrific, right? This increase in specific um, uh, impulse and the, the efficiency gains and the payload um, gains and all of that. So why has it not been done before? Because the idea, again, correct me if I'm wrong, has has been around for many decades, right? Correct. Yeah. And 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 also correct me if I'm wrong, but I think even though the idea has been around for many decades, every operating rocket I'm aware of in the world today, or even in the recent past, is basically using bell nozzles, right? Yes, that is correct. Right. So yeah, there has been attempts actually at using aerospikes also recently with Firefly. I know that you 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 were also mentioning them in a podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, so then they they switched back to bell nozzles, but not for technical reasons. I think it was more of a lawsuit or something like that. But uh, okay, as you say, like the concept of aerospikes stems from the past. So during the 50s, uh, when uh, NASA was basically investigating everything, uh, they mm -hmm. also investigated aerospikes and uh, they wanted to create this uh, launch vehicle which is called the venture star that uh, should have been a single stage to orbit vehicle so what does it mean uh, usually rockets are staged they are made of segments mm -hmm. but they wanted to have only one segment so one single stage to go to orbit and to do that you need very energetic propellants like oxygen and hydrogen and a very efficient engine like mm -hmm. an aerospace engine then basically what's what's the point there are many points but uh, to to make it short uh, there were technical challenges because to make a single stage to orbit vehicle weight is of utmost importance so you have to be very light mm. so they had like a composite tank uh, for the hydrogen that always leaked it always failed and this was one of the issues they, they couldn't make it right then also aerospikes uh, were very expensive to manufacture because of this cooling system that i'm mentioning so they have to be cooled down by very very tiny channels that you had to brace manually so there was an operator actually gluing let's say uh, brazing 
uh, these channels together, and there were thousands and thousands of channels per engine. So imagine the human error into bracing these mm. channels together. Like on 3,000 channels, for sure, one is, is wrong. And then also these programs were shut down because there was a lack of funding from yeah. NASA to Lockheed Martin, who was the, the main contractor. Mm. And then basically, yeah, after that, there was sort of like a dissolution, a letdown on the aerospace world, and nobody wanted to investigate them anymore and such yeah. because this program basically failed because of technical and political reasons. Uh, but then, I mean, in Europe, we had a lot of investigation from uh, ONERA, for example, in France, uh, on uh, the advantages of the aerospace and such. Uh, but no one uh, really tried to industrialize this engine. So it was a lot of research, but never something like hardware related. And this is where now we, we come into play together with some other small companies in the world, because the idea that we have uh, in mind is to exploit 3D printing to make it possible. The, the problem of the cooling system that I was relating to before is uh, something that uh, can be overcome with 3D printing easily, because all these channels, all this intricate maze of channels that you have in the engine is the same for the 3D printing machine. The 3D printing machine is a computer, it's a machine, it doesn't matter how much much how complex the piece yeah. is and in fact we are leveraging that uh, to basically make prospect not only feasible but also lightweight and above all economically viable yeah because with the 3d printing machine you pay the same for a complex geometry or for a simple geometry you don't have to have an operator that is gluing channels together during days and weeks and months the, the really key enabler printing not because it's now it's possible to to print it but as well it's because you reduce complexity in terms of number pieces for example mm -hmm. our demonstrated that uh, as previously mentioning that we've done a test later this year it's only two pieces and it's a wow. full engine so it's yes. everything is inside so the printer as as Fede was explaining it doesn't care if it's super complex or it's just a bottle I mean it will print the deal case yeah it's it's cheaper as well so we can give more or less we are converting it down to an order of magnitude in terms of cost yeah. really even even more yeah. we can obviously see that the, the the use of 3d printing i mean beyond you guys it's sort of expanding and yeah in rocketry right i mean um yeah i think spacex is printing not the big ones necessarily but the the draco engines the thrusters i think are yes. entirely 3d right. printed and then of course uh, relativity is well known for using it <laughs> for everything yeah. the entire rocket yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a different technology though. yes oh. yeah that was actually my next question what the material is so it's some some sort of metal or alloy what we're using <laughs> is called direct laser metal sintering okay it's uh, yeah. yeah exactly so yeah we're using something which is uh, copper based because copper has highest thermal conductivity of almost all metals and it also has a very strength if you put uh, a little bit of other materials inside yeah. like uh, zirconium for example and niobium and uh, so we are using an alloy of copper and a little bit of these other metals uh, yeah. because we want the maximum thermal conductivity and the maximum strength yeah it's not a novel material i mean it's something that has been used in the past but it's novel for 3d printing because 3D printing now, it's usually uh, based on other alloys, based on nickel and uh, aluminium mm -hmm. and steel. But copper is very is very hard to to 
3D print, print uh, because it's very reflective. So when you melt it with a laser, because you, 3D printing is basically melting powder with a laser, yeah. it reflects this laser back. It reflects a lot mm. of heat back, yeah. and uh, it's uh, challenging. Yeah. But this is not uh, something that uh, we have to care about yeah. because we have our suppliers and. Uh, and you, you can use existing like uh, off-the-shelf uh, 3D printing machines. It's not something you have to currently. I mean, off-the-shelf is correct for the machine absolutely because uh, those exist but the that, tuning of the yeah, machine the and the process is something that is absolutely not off the shelf because uh, you know our sector is so niche and these applications were not developed for the space sector they were developed for electricity transmission and heat exchange and such and so the printing process is sort of like coarse it's broad it's generalistic it's not tailored to these applications so we are working together with our suppliers on the metallurgical side uh, on the printing process process uh, to get really the best out of this material in terms of thermal conductivity and strength so it's a very tailored process but but once once you have the the sort of setup done and tested let's say like a few years later on in theory then you could quote unquote produce those like almost mass produce those engines yeah that is correct. Mean, correct yeah it's I just mean. a matter of having more printers uh, yeah exactly but, um, for example to give you an order of magnitude is demonstrated uh, the printing time for about the full the two pieces is less than two weeks with one with one machine one machine yeah so of course then you have to machine it and and to polish some parts etc and to put the threads for you know all the piping but raw manufacturing it's only two weeks i mean yeah. before it was multiple hundreds of pieces months even years so it's it's really a game changer yeah. yeah, also because the volumes that we have in this industry are very small. I mean, even mm -hmm. if you were to launch, let's say, one rocket per week, uh, that's like, okay, 52 engines per year. It's not like the cars manufacture yes. manufacture yes. millions of engines per year, you know. And, and you're hoping, as you said several times, you're hoping, obviously, to, to reuse as well. How, how many times... You think you could reuse it? The engine, uh, 10 times. Yeah. So we're aiming for that. Uh, this is uh, one of the difficult things to predict. In fact, we have to test. Uh, for example, you know that the Space Shuttle main engine, one of the most famous engines, was designed to be reused 200 times, and then in the end, they could reuse it only 10 times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but we made a combination of choices, so like liquid methane, as Adria was mentioning, like the material, the printing process, the geometry, that uh, will minimize the warping distortion and thus the amount of refurbishment that we need after each firing and this uh, um, is being designed basically uh, to to last 10 cycles so we have simulated the, the accumulation of plasticity because the material is deforming like plastic it's metal but it's deforming like plastic after every firing because the flow is very hot mm -hmm. so plastic accumulates and it deforms the engine after every cycle and currently the engine is being designed to last 10 cycles yeah. to, with these plastic deformations but it's very hard to tell though yeah. we will need to test to be honest exactly. to understand that this is our goal of course if these number is increased the better but we think that the whole economic not only of of the engine firing but a potential launcher with with 10 times we are way ahead in terms of of costs, savings, and, and able to really reduce the price to, to potential clients. You're, you're on the edge because of, of this reusability 
uh, either on the engine or on the full stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I realized, that actually, I forgot to ask you, what's the um, what's the size of the engine you're targeting here? And I don't mean like for the test purposes. I mean that's that's an interesting question too. But sort of like the production size, like, yeah. and uh, you know, I guess what people might be listeners might be familiar with. Um, is stuff like you know somewhere on the scale between like a electron rougher third which is a very small engine to like you know a again like yeah. a merlin which is a much bigger engine <laughs> yeah yeah of course yeah it's something in between as you say so for the yeah for the missile launcher which which is our rocket prototype uh, we're talking about an engine that has to provide 30 tons of thrust roughly mm -hmm. so we're talking about an aerospec engine that has a diameter more or less of one meter, 1.2 meters of diameter, and a height of roughly one meter. So this is what we're talking about. It's uh, much larger than the Rutherford, but much smaller than the Merlin, yeah. for sure. And but is it, is it just one engine? Just one engine, exactly, okay. because uh, of many reasons. Oh, it, it would be too long, maybe to explain. <laughs> yeah, no. Otherwise, I was that was would have been my next question. If like, if there's any sort of things you have to take into account if you have one engine next to the other because okay sure yeah we can was, talk wasn't about there that. something that also then if you go back to the bell nozzles that i thought i heard somebody talk about you you may even have like a or create a virtual aerospike effect if yeah. you arrange the bell yeah. nozzles in a certain that way and correct. that is correct in fact yeah that's uh because basically yeah so this like uh, this activity let's say it's called clustering when you put all these engines together on the on the stage and then if you basically cluster several bell nozzles and you make them shoot at an angle such that their plumes will converge in the middle. I don't know if I'm explaining myself very well, but basically you will create a, 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 virtual, a, a virtual aerospike. Exactly, because an aerospike, what it does is that, basically. So it, it converges all the flow in the middle. And so basically you will uh, create a, an aerodynamic aerospike yeah. with all this, uh, these engines. But I don't know what is the performance increase of this effect. I mean, I know that uh, some people said it, and uh, Peter Beck, for example, so <laughs> not the, the last one in the business. But anyway, class Clustering, I mean, uh, clustering for us is uh, right now not an option. Uh, it may become an option, but right now, and this is linked uh, for, for to, to the re-entry side, for example, because you know that uh, we want to reuse the entire stage, not only the engine. I mean, the engine is attached to the stage, but you need to recover the stage. So the stage, the first stage, what it does is that it goes almost into orbit, then it falls back, uh, like the SpaceX first stage, like the yeah. SpaceX boosters. And when it falls back, it generates a lot of heat because of mm -hmm. friction with the atmosphere. And so you need some sort of pointed device that can actually, you know, break this uh, this uh, air, this high-speed air, yeah. like a missile, you know, a missile has a, has a pointed tip. And it's mm -hmm. basically the same concept. And so our pointed tip for the stage is the aerospike. The spike, yeah, which is pointy. That makes sense. <laughs> exactly, it makes sense. So you have a big spike on the top. Yeah. It's basically creating this big ball shot, how it's called, that is... Uh, taking heat away from the stage is protecting yeah. the stage so it's also good as a re-entering device uh, the on, on the whole architecture um, decisions i mean it's good for going up but it turned out as well very interesting going back for going back yeah, yeah. 
maybe let's uh, segue into that sort of like from 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 the aerospike which has been a super interesting discussion to sort of the potential plans for an entire launcher and you know what what the rest of the architecture looks like to the extent you can talk about it uh, this is maybe you answering uh, okay <laughs> yeah, sure. i mean right now um as fede was saying so we we intend as well on this the whole architecture to do to reuse the first stage and actually we convinced the european union actually to for granting us a, a a research project that we are leading called the rrtb uh together with um, some amazing partners and very well-known institutions uh, in europe such as you know Selenia, von Karman Institute, mm -hmm. München, that actually uh, trying something different uh, to reuse a first stage, which is integrating it with drone-based system, which is adding, sticking some electric ducted fans, so electric rotors on the side of the of the rocket and trying to make it land safely at horizontal latitude. So, of course, having a passive re-entry, taking advantage of, of, of having the aerospike in order to, you know, break through the, the atmosphere and dissipate as much heat and, and try to recover it in a, in a safe manner. And then on the landing part, to avoid restarting again the main engine, such as, for example, SpaceX is doing and having a retropropulsive landing, mm -hmm. uh, having it with another system, which is this kind of electric ducted fans that provide Uh, just enough thrust uh, to have a smooth landing. So we convinced them. We are leading this consortium. It's a three-year project. I actually, invite every all the listeners to to check check it out on online. It's rrtb.eu. And yeah, I mean, this is very innovative in terms of reusability. It has, of course, never been done. And another option could be the retropropulsive landing. If, if we make a, a throttable aerospike, the conventional, let's say, SpaceX-type uh, landing yeah. would as well as well interesting because on the drawbacks of of the system we are researching of course it's an electrical system so it needs batteries and batteries are heavy so you have a penalty yeah. there but of course it's overcome by the fact that you are able to reuse many times so you don't have to build a new rocket every time so potentially you are a little bit less efficient on the on one uh, single launch but uh, as you reuse it it becomes better and better spacex i think has at least two maybe even three burns right there's the re-entry burn the landing burn what you're describing right almost sort of like it's almost like it sounds like what the electric aircraft use sometimes right that presumably that wouldn't be used for a re-entry burn, right? That would only be at the oh, very yeah. yeah, just for the landing phase at the very end. Yeah, yeah. Okay. for for the for the burn, uh, so the boost back burn and the re-entry burn. There's the aerospike that is performing that. Yeah, and so it's that's performing it even better because it's optimized even at that. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the EDFs are only for precision landing on the last uh, on yeah. the last portion of the of the falling trajectory. I wanted to ask you what sort of your you know medium long term vision was for Pangaea. Is is that to have this you know so much more efficient small launcher or what? How would you characterize it? First, uh, as I said at the beginning, is the technology mm -hmm. we are developing um, both the propulsion technology that Fede is is here the head of, and of course we want to scale it up uh, because of course we have to do with what's available out there because. They're, I mean, a 3D printer to able to print, I don't know, two meters diameter engine is not yet available. No, no one has done it because, yet again, Fede said it before, but these 3D printers were not thought because of, uh, of uh, you know, answering the, the market needs of the aerospace sector. It's just 
the technology push of, of the of the guys doing the 3D printers and it's saying, oh, but actually this could be very well suit the, the you know rocket engine sector and now they're trying to make them bigger. So with that in, in, in mind, we first want to become experts in engine design and being the mm-hmm. uh, reference in the world for the R spikes and of course, we want to make them fly because they haven't fly before and we want to prove ourselves but everyone that they are indeed better mm-hmm. on the recovery side uh, let's see how the all the technical outcomes and and conclusions of of the of this project are and then of course if the this technological building blocks um, worked as we plan and then we we hope and then we are working really hard to to make it a reality of course uh, the the launcher part will will come hopefully a little bit easier because we are trying to solving here things that have never done before and that's very interesting, challenging, but sometimes very, very different, very difficult because you are shooting in, in, in the black sky and you don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. you, there is no literature that you can refer for mm-hmm. designing an aerospike. I mean, or at least that we, <laughs> we know about. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's going from zero to one at the yeah. sites, a uh, famous book. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Thiel. Yeah, that's that, that's yeah. that's a great book. But I assume, like you know, even if you guys do end up going for designing of your own small launcher or not, I I guess you could also theoretically sell your engines once it's proven right. to, to yeah. other companies, right? Of course. I mean, um, yet again, the building block first, of course, is if you want to build a launch company, you need an engine. You need yep. to go up before going back. If we do it as good as we want to do it, I mean, we are happy to, to, to you know, offer it to other companies, to institutions, to agencies that, I mean, the spike as, as we said before, has been here for a long time. And we want to be the ones or some of the ones that really makes it a reality and being able to have it for ourselves, of course, but being able to, I don't know, uh, thinking of the next, uh, Ariane Next, for example, mm. uh, why not implementing an R-Spike there? I mean, of course, here the, the sky is the limit. Mm. Yeah, we're sure this is going to happen, like uh, to have an uh, engine uh, or specific component suppliers uh, also in the rocket sector, like it is on the aircraft sector, yeah. for example, mm-hmm. which is much mm-hmm. more developed than our sector. But uh, maybe the market is not ready yet, also because now if you're a startup, uh, you know, and you will tell to your investors, yeah, I'm going to buy my engine. And they say, yeah, but that's your core technology and you're going to externalize it. So, you know, it doesn't really make sense. But uh, in the near future, it's coming. Also, there are examples of successful companies like Ursa Major in the US they're trying to sell their engines that yeah. are beautiful engines and they are they are succeeding in their business so it's it's coming but we are really at the at the dawn of this uh, of this new market also in the yeah. rocket sector from what I see, I, I, I tend to agree with that I guess the other thing like you said in the aerospace so I'm sorry in the space the rocketry market the volumes just have not been very high, right? So there's not so like there's not like proven value chain where like you know you know oh I buy, I'm going to buy from this supplier and then uh, the, yeah. then the tanks from this supplier, the engine from this supplier, the avionics, yeah. and I'm going to integrate it all. And it's all going to work. That's yeah, just exactly. much less proven, right? I mean, we all hope we're going to get there, so we can mass produce also with these models which are not necessarily fully vertically integrated, which is the way everybody is doing it right now, like SpaceX. But it's probably a little bit too early still. But yeah. Hopefully we'll get yeah. there. Yeah, we, we do believe sure. as, as, as you do that it's going this direction for sure because there's much more need. Many people that want to launch and do their mm-hmm. you know research business uh, up there and we need to have more ways 
and more companies uh, giving that service and, and pro- uh, let's say, rocket products. Yeah, mm, yeah. But for example, I mean, I refer to very specific components such as valves. I mean, for example, before you would also like develop your own valves, uh, which are mm-hmm. an extremely complex component. And uh, but but now there are plenty of industries and companies in the world that are manufacturing valves for the space sector. You know, so this is uh, mm-hmm. something. There is already there, yeah. And then uh, it, it will go more and more at the system level, like to sell engine cell, entire subsystems, just yeah. like uh, the, aeros- the, the aeronautical sector. Great. Let, let, let me finish up maybe on sort of like a few questions hitting more of the futuristic um, visionary note. So you already mentioned um, the old dream of single stage to orbit. As you mentioned, it's a function of, of, of a few different variables. Uh, basically, you want a very efficient uh, engine. You want very lightweight, very lightweight structure, um, efficient fuel and all of that with what you guys are working on do you see this might become reality at some point in time is it even worth pursuing it or a stage rockets fine <laughs> wow that's a very good yeah. question yeah. I mean, <laughs> you, you have one minute no, i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> no but i mean i think yes uh, okay so i mean single stage to orbit is not a dream i mean it's something that it's possible to to achieve absolutely uh with an aerospike engine uh the thing is uh, uh to achieve a single stage to orbit uh, you absolutely need something that is more energetic that for example lox and methane uh, so sorry liquid oxygen and liquid methane but you need uh, uh, liquid hydrogen mm-hmm. and liquid oxygen or also some sort of fluorine mixed with liquid oxygen which is a very bad idea if you want to be environmentally friendly <laughs> so this uh, what, what i was saying is okay you have to use this very energetic propellants but lox hydrogen is not something that is suitable anymore for uh, for startups and for the, the privatization and the democratization of the space sector because it's something that is so extreme so hard to handle that mm. it only governments you know can make use of that because they don't really care about their revenues uh, they you know so in the direction that the space sector is going which is uh, cutting costs like crazy basically uh, mm. I wouldn't say uh, single stage to orbit is something that yeah. I see in the near future because single stage to orbit is uh, extreme performance but I don't care about my revenues okay so yeah the my engine is the best engine ever made but it costs a hundred millions per engine um it's not something that i'm seeing because uh, right now we tend to not maximize uh, performance so much as in the past for example with the space shuttle and such but Mm -hmm. at cost so yeah but yeah at least uh, technically yet again it's, it's feasible um one other thing it could be interesting as well that aerospikes could could help is is in the also hypersonic uh, yeah. transportation that it's also mm. uh, a topic that I mean it has been there like forever for ages decades uh, but now it's yet again with a whole new bunch of new technologies for I don't know. Uh, thermal protection systems, but also for the propulsion side, an aerospike, for example, on something called our heating detonation engines, where the combustion that gives you that pressure, it's not at a subsonic speed, but it's at actually supersonic speed, combined with the nozzle of an aerospike could be very interesting for fuel saving and having this hypersonic transportation being more efficient than uh, they are now theorized. So we do believe that investigating a lot of in, and doing research on these aerospike rocket engines could lead to other potential spin-offs, very interesting for the whole, let's say, transportation uh, sector in, in the more general view. Yes. Th- that's a really interesting topic. And yeah, this, this whole thing of suborbital hypersonic flights for cargo, but then also for people. And yeah. I must have an episode on that. I need to think mm-hmm. about somebody mm-hmm. to invite for that, for sure. And 
The last couple of questions I wanted to ask you guys was, um, so the aerospack is an example of an old idea, well, old, relatively old, right, for the space sector. Um, it's a few decades old, so that's old for the space sector. And it was just was technologically very hard to do it, and now it's, it's feasible. Is there anything else you can think of that falls into that category? Good ideas from the past, we couldn't do them, but now we can do them. <laughs> wow, it's a very good point. Yeah. Well, I would say fully reusable vehicles, like uh, something kind of the on the single stage orbit, or not even single stage, but like fully reusable things that uh, with, uh, for example, the space shuttle was very mm -hmm. complex to refurbish. It was super much more expensive than, than expected and not fully, let's say, reusable. But for, yet again, new technologies on, on thermal protection systems, for example, could are really improving and having very innovative materials. So being able to have a fully reusable system, I think it's something that we will see in our lifetime for sure. It's a very interesting point, but I've actually never thought about. I mean, I would say something related to batteries probably or something related to electronics. Mm. Because if I think about the past, like, you know, I mean, uh, really they, they went to the moon with the CPU of a cell phone, like of a, of a very old cell phone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right now we have uh, like, iPhone uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I would yeah, say, yeah, something related to that and related to also battery technologies. But uh, yeah, specific examples I cannot make. Cool. Well, maybe, maybe some people are listening got inspired to, to yeah. think about it and go back to history and <laughs> look at that. NASA archives and so forth. Um, before I forget to ask you guys, are you guys um, hiring? <laughs> we are. We are always. Okay. That's on. Is it something people can find on your website? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. We, we we put that in the... On the propulsion department to work together with Federico, we are hiring. So terrific. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes as well, so people can check it out. Absolutely. And then where I always finish up, and it won't be different with you guys, is, is science fiction because I love it, and most people in the space sector love it. <laughs> you guys like science fiction? Um, if yes, which ones? By the way, any aerospikes in science fiction? That's also something I'd like to know. <laughs> I don't think so. I've never yeah. seen an aerospike yeah, in science fiction. I've never seen them. No. Never seen. No, I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, science fiction. I, I'm most of a geek. Like, I mean, I'm very, I don't know, yeah, engineering oriented. So whenever, like, I watch some movies about, uh, like, for example, Interstellar or Gravity, you know, like this uh, very recent movies uh, about space, I'm always very focused on the technical side. Yes, on the technical side of things. Uh, and that's so, impossible. You know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what I like to do is, like, <laughs> Checking and uh, <laughs> yeah, you 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 pick the holes into the technical technological yeah, side. Yeah. Yes, exactly. No, I mean I love sci-fi, of course, but I'm maybe yeah too biased about my engineering. Like, okay, you need you need uh, what we call the the hard science fiction, the guys who actually like you know the, the physicists or rocket engineers who write science fiction and have actually checked yeah, exactly. everything. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, but I know. I mean, that they hired like very famous physicists to to, to yeah for inter interstellar for example. interstellar yeah. for example. Oh, Kip Thorne. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and, but but I'm more relating to the propulsion side. So, for yeah. example, when the rocket is going up, then the black hole and these things. But, I don't know. They never, they never, they never explain it, right? It's like, yeah, exactly. it's like well, we have the Epstein drive. Yeah, what is the Epstein drive. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. How does it work? <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's all centered on the black hole, but I yeah. want to know actually how do you get how, there how in the first place? There, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On my side, I less bias for my technical background as well. I. But yeah, I love sci-fi. I love, for example, Arrival, the whole, let's say, philosophical and linguistic problem that we could have if we ever get um, visited, for example. I, I like I liked it very much. I love, for example, Aldebaran, which is a French comic 
on a near future. Uh, yeah, I love that one. And then the, I, I guess the classic answer you're getting is like Star Wars and I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and Star Trek. <laughs> Star Trek, Battlestar Galactica. Yeah, The Expanse. I love The Expanse as well. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like recently, I'm, I'm watching For All Mankind. I mean, it's not really sci-fi, mm-hmm. but it's this this series where actually it was the Soviets that arrived first to the moon, and it's yes. it's pretty interesting. Uh, it, it's it's pretty well done. So yes. yeah, I'm a, I'm a sci-fi guy myself as well. I mean, you have to be. <laughs> yes, yes. And again, sci-fi gives gives inspiration as well. Indeed, it's indeed. Fun. It's, Absolutely. It's inspiration for all of us. And, you know, I hope that some of the work you guys are doing is sort of bringing a bit of sci-fi um, yeah. to, to, to the not not too far future. Yeah. yeah. Good luck with everything. Um, I know you guys have the, hope to have the engine on the on the test stand in a few months. Um, so we'll be watching that. Obviously, also as investors, we're very curious. But in general, good luck with that. And you're very excited about, about the technologies you're developing. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you. Thank you, Rafael. For having us. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.